And once again, here we go. Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 28. What is neurosomatic therapy? Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio for another uh, adventure behind the microphones. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Um, We've been at this for 28. Actually, you know what? I think it's longer than 28 because we've had a couple of episodes. We had one episode that was two parts. Mm -hmm. So this is actually episode 29. And then we had the Christmas episode last year. That makes 30. I'm feeling old already. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Folks, if this is your first time here, welcome to Fusion Health Radio. This is uh, an opportunity for you to learn something about health that you may not have considered before in a way that you may not have even considered even possible before. Uh, Dr. Michael Smith, please introduce yourself and tell people what you know. Uh, So I practice integrative medicine. I've been doing that for over 20 years. I do that by combining the ancient wisdom and vast experience of traditional Chinese medicine with the modern sciences of functional medicine and what we now call ancestral or evolutionary nutrition. That sounds pretty interesting, pretty complicated. That's why we've been at this for 30 or so podcasts. (laughs) Um, And uh, myself, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm the producer of this uh, podcast and um, a cheerleader for whatever it is that Michael teaches in and around health. I was a patient of his a few years ago, um, and I'm still learning from him even today, as I don't even know what neurosomatic therapy is, so we're both going to figure that out together. (laughs) Uh, And I'm also an online marketing smarty pants, somebody who knows how to uh, get things to the internet, uh, in and around business, marketing, communications, that sort of thing. And I also know how to run a podcast, so here I am. Here we are. And it just occurs to me, maybe at some point we could reverse roles and I could interview on you on what it's like to be a, or what actually is an online smarty pants and what you do and how it works. Because I know uh, as a self-employed sort of entrepreneur person that every person I talk to who has a really great hack for online business stuff, always, it's always worth the conversation or always worth the seminar to learn new things. So maybe we could turn it around and make a show all about you. Wow. That'd be kind of fun. I'm getting kind of nervous just thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) What? You want me to talk? (laughs) The the way I do it with clients is I'm the guy, picture you're at the stars on ice and the arena goes dark and then all of a sudden the spotlight comes on and then the star comes on ice and does a whole bunch of fancy stuff. I'm the guy behind the spotlight. (laughs) Yeah, I got that. That, That's why I was having fun flipping it over. for. (laughs) And also I could enjoy picking your brain on on the show. Yeah, there you go. Um, I won't even charge you for it. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, we talked uh, the last time about cholesterol. Mm-hmm. That was our last episode, 27. Um, do you want to give folks just a taste of what that was all about? Uh, the easiest way for me to say it is the last 60 years of medical science uh, around heart disease and the role cholesterol plays in it has been honestly the most embarrassing uh, flailing thing that's, I don't know, in, in my actual memory around how science works. Yeah, it was a pretty good discovery session for me too, uh, sort of talking about um, what it is I know about medicine, which is basically everything I've seen on TV commercials, <laughs> compared to whatever it is you know. <laughs> and ER, and what's, what's that other one? Uh, emergency. That, that was a big one when I was a kid. Uh, it's like more like a soap opera. Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yes, sure. My son was watching that a while ago. I was like, whoa, you're <laughs> yeah. watching a soap opera. <laughs> yeah, ER. I mean, there's all kinds of medical things that are out there, but uh, lots of misinformation. And I, I suppose there's a lot of new information as well. Uh, yeah, in the last few years, honestly, with respect to all, all aspects of medicine, but specifically around cholesterol and the role that inflammation, uh, oxidative stress, the fact that there's way more different kinds of cholesterol as molecules than just what we call cholesterol. And um, it's that we're actually dealing with mostly the worst version of the carrier molecules that move cholesterol around your body. Some of them are fine. Some of them are dangerous. And we used to all just test, you know, LDL, HDL. But it turns out there's different kinds of LDL, different kinds of HDL, and the ratios of those amongst themselves and especially towards triglycerides now is the, the new marker. But you should also be testing for oxidative stress, inflammation, and other stuff, or uh, insulin spikes, you know, the typical things that most people in the developed world are dealing with just because of how we live. And those would be much better predictors of what's going to happen to you in the long term than just the standard LDL, uh, HDL uh, markers in your lab tests. A lot of information on what you just said. Oh. And I'm going to suggest <laughs> that for people who are curious to know more about cholesterol and what that means to them um, and to rethink, I think that should be the new name of this, Rethinking Medicine or Rethinking Health. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the cholesterol episode uh, is the one for you to listen to to get more details on that whole idea and uh, take action, I would say, on your health in a, in a good way. Yeah, I mean, the name of that cholesterol or that podcast is Cholesterol is Not the Problem. And I think that's been the, the biggest um, kind of mind hack that we've all lived in is that saturated fat in some way makes bad cholesterol and some way bad cholesterol makes people die and nothing could be, literally nothing could be farther from the truth. Hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, my mind's wanting to ask you more questions around cholesterol, but I know I already have. <laughs> we, so. We've already done that one. <laughs> we've already done that one. Um, so today uh, we're talking about uh, something that is totally new to me and... Um, well, maybe by name, uh, but I've known you for a while as a medical professional, so perhaps I've experienced it in some way. But neurosomatic therapy is uh, something that's new to me, but it's not new to you, and it's actually something you invented. Uh, is that the right well, way to, to I, describe I, it? There's The term has been used by other people. I mean, neurosomatic basically means mind-body, or the neurophysiology behind uh, the somatic sense we have of ourselves. So we all have a felt sense of ourselves as an emotional being as a cognitive being, you know, how smart or stupid or hungover or, you know, whatever is my mind, how expansive or contracted or uptight is my heart. And then uh, more uh, cogent or specific to neurosomatic therapy is how is it that my body memory, the felt sense of my tissue self, um, how much is that impacting how I see myself in the world or the world around me? And as we get into it, it turns out that that's actually more like 80% of what's really the most important issue for people. Hmm, wow. Okay, so uh, just to be clear then, I mean, I introduced you as being somebody who invented this idea, but uh, that's not true then? Well, the term neurosomatic therapy has been used by other people. I don't, I don't think it's ever been trademarked, but, uh, and maybe it can't because it's such a obviously a, a standard kind of term, I think. So when I actually copyrighted or trademarked that, when I developed it in 2004, I trademarked it as Applied Neurosomatics. Okay. Uh, which in its description is really about applied mind-body medicine. But, um, I mean, obviously with the mind, you're dealing with psychologists or meditation in the sense of you want to talk or you want to shut up <laughs> uh, to just polarize that in a really simplified way. Um, when it comes to the body, there's so many different ways that we can approach 
changing how we actually feel, our posture, our strength, our flexibility, our stamina. But more importantly, if you're walking around uh, with really collapsed shoulders and, you know, you don't even really breathe and you're really sad and um, most of us think, oh man, that poor person is depressed. I'm sure we all have a friend or a relative that you can kind of imagine as kind of that shy sort of stooped over person who would like the... We have that expression in our culture about the straw on the camel's back. Well, this person looks like they're carrying a stack of camels, you know, (laughs) waiting for the next one to land with a piano on top of it. And when you see a person like that, I mean, a part of us, I think, intuitively or empathically says, wow, I wish there was some way to help that person feel better. And we project what feel better means is think and emote better. But if that person could spend six months rearranging how it is they stood, how they breathed, where they stored sadness or, you know, that sounds very literal, but, you know, we'll get, we'll get deeper into that. Uh, I'd say within six months, that person would, because of changing their somatic self or their embodied self, free up so much of their emotional and, you know, mental self, uh, especially around creativity, imagination, because the body is, you know, believe it or not, 80% of everything that's going on. Hmm. Well, it, when you talk about how our, what we think in our, I guess our emotional state, how it affects our body, um, it just makes me think of expressions like, uh, you know, chin up, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to sort of perk yourself up or uh, stiff, upper, stiff upper lip, if I can say that, um, or... Um, and we could take it the other way too, which would be, oh man, I'm gutted. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I, I just had this big breakup and I'm, I mean, I got nothing or the butterflies in my stomach. Well, this is mine. The butterflies in my stomach feel like pterodactyls with machine guns, you know? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, again, that just brings the, the attention of the conversation towards, yeah, that felt sense is so much more of life than I think at any of us, um, unless you've already delved into this, have ever delved into at all. Well, I mean, I mean just that expression there, the having a stiff upper lip, you know, is the, um, I guess the epitome in my mind of something that sort of talks to how our physical um, uh, posture can sort of affect our disposition. You know, I, and I say the the one that's sort of the most used because I see it in movies a lot, right? Um, referring to the Brits during the war having mm-hmm. a stiff upper lip. Um, but it's interesting that it's something that's sort of um, almost not seen as medicine. I mean, it's almost just seen as something like a colloquialism, just sort of an expression, not necessarily something that would actually affect our health in some way. And I think that's the the biggest sort of flaw to the way this culture has evolved, although it's changing, um, is we have that kind of misogynistic over patriarchal sense that, uh, you know, you should just, you know, keep your spine straight, keep your head up, keep your crap together. And in some magical way, that's going to help you in life. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to help people see that you're not tired or whatever, but, uh, and I'll try and keep this safe for kids, but I mean, those people look like they got a cucumber in the wrong orifice. <laughs> they're sitting on it. <laughs> well, they're hiding it from the border guards in a really creepy place. You know, so I mean, that, that kind of, um, masking opportunity, you know, like, okay, I'll just look like I'm tough and can keep my stuff together and people will respect me or leave me alone or something. And there's no intelligence to that. There's no cooperation. There's no sensing in. There's no empathy. And there's no chance to actually unravel stuff. I mean, so here's two quick examples. Say a person around eight years old got molested by naughty uncle. 
and uh, their cousin that they've never met, uh, eight years old, got into a car accident. Now, both of those experiences are very, very traumatic. One happens, you know, in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, the other one happens over a very, very, you know, disgusting, you know, 15 minutes or something. And the way those two individuals uh, are going to embody the memory of that experience uh, will be different because they're different experiences, but they're both basically containing a very visceral and very potent kind of hand grenade of trauma within their somatic and visceral self. And their nervous system has learned that that's just what you do with that kind of an experience. It's like having a, you know, you adopt a puppy and it's not kind of like, it turned out to be the kind of puppy that chews up everything and craps everywhere. So now the puppy lives in your, you know, your, that little room people have between your door and your shoes and the other door. I forgot what the name of that room is. Closet? <laughs> yeah, that other room. <laughs> the boot closet or the coat closet or whatever. And because we don't like the puppy, you know, chewing and crapping on everything, uh, we just put it in a, in, a, in a little room by itself. And people do the same thing with trauma. Hmm. You know, so uh, either one of those people may be in their 20s or 30s, maybe they're dealing with addiction or they're <clears throat> on 15 different pharmaceuticals or um, they're a yoga teacher, but they're completely viscerally bound and they, they're still trying to find some way to release it, but they haven't yet. Uh, I'm not saying yoga couldn't do that. I'm just saying, for example, that person may be stuck. The real opportunity is to find a way to unwind the holding pattern. So opening the door for the puppy and then creating the conditions for some of that emotion to move. Hmm. So just to, we're going to probably bounce around a bit with this. It's a really hard topic to, to do in a straight line. But when I developed this and started teaching it, back in about 2004, we developed, we built like an actual treatment center so the students have a chance to practice on people. And in the back, we built two rooms that were soundproofed and the tables that we're using to treat people were actually uh, things that I made that were kind of like higher than usual futons so that I could put my legs, you know, in a squatting position underneath the table and do what I was doing. But when the patient started to really release stuff, sometimes they would just cry. Sometimes they would get really, really aggressive and I'd have to deal with them physically. Luckily, I, I know a little bit about tussling. Sometimes they would just twitch and shake to the point where they would be in uh, what's called myoclonic shaking, which kind of looks like a person having a mild epileptic seizure. Sometimes, not often, but sometimes they would flop around aggressively and flail, but have no idea that they were in the room with me uh, 2004 or five. For them, they were back in 1976 when the bad uncle showed up. Mm. And they're, you know, there's there's really no rational way to deal with uh, profound, intense emotion. Sorry, if you think you can think your way through this stuff, uh, it's the wrong organ. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, so they would literally flail around the room. So we wanted them to fall off of the table with the least amount of height, and there was no other furniture in the room, so that if they started banging into things, they wouldn't hurt themselves. So I know that might sound freaky. It only happened once in a while to, to that degree. Most people just twitch a lot and then cry. But... Um, in a really good way for those people who think crying is in some way not a good thing. And the uh, kind of release and insight people would get as they went through, like a, usually a series of 10 treatments uh, around what's called neuroplasticity. And the way they would uh, get to know themselves and fundamentally at the end of it all, the way they remembered themselves in the world was profoundly different. So their experience of this uh, stress and trauma might have been kind of um, hidden to them in some way or perhaps repressed. Uh, before uh, they came to yeah. have a treatment. Yeah. And then as they sort of left, they'd be kind of um, put through the ringer um, uh, in yeah. some way, clean, refreshed. 
Well, I guess I'm... Can I ask your permission to get personal? Sure. So both of us, as far as I know, have experienced a certain amount of childhood trauma. Yeah, I was abused as a kid. Sure. Me too. So when do you remember that as a memory? Did you ever forget or? Uh, no. I mean, um, I remember two or three specific incidences, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't remember how long it happened, like over how many months it happened. Um or like, I guess I just have snapshots mm-hmm. of specific, um, things that sort of, I guess I would call them benchmarks. This happened. This particular thing was like, Oh my God, you know? And this particular thing was like, um, Oh, that's the point where I actually turned it around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's why I'm able to talk about it today without actually even flinching. Yeah, and so, I mean, I'm not going to get into the details, but I've been through those kind of experiences in what I would consider a pretty intense way. And a lot of it, I mean, I remember the violence, but Mm. I didn't remember the sexual violence until I was in my mid-30s. And I was actually ceremonially doing things like ayahuasca and other hallucinogens that are very, very potent in in the sense of getting to really know yourself because it's like true serum between you and the rest of the universe in a way. And I think in a way I needed that permission and that kind of confidence or resilience or strength um, to actually be able to see those other memories. And that's true for everyone is if you don't have the support and I think the psychological, emotional resilience to actually know yourself as, oh no, I'm that kind of person. Because at first, you know, that's the last thing you want to know about yourself because it's in, in Western culture, if you've been the victim of some kind of sexual abuse, especially as a child, you know, we, we kind of walk around with this, you know, scarlet letter S of shame on our chest, which is, you know, you go, we meet a intimate partner and, you know, yeah, sorry, I kind of have issues around this because of this and this and this, you know, that's not a great thing to say on the first date because <laughs> <laughs> well, where, where did they go? I thought they were going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so again, I, got, I guess I'm just trying to play out the fact that um, or the experience that, uh, we all compartmentalize those things and we kind of have, um, like a thumbnail memory, mm-hmm. you know, I had this weird visit and something weird happened and it wasn't great. Uh, but you don't remember the entire experience and that's where neurosomatics come in, which is, okay, let's unravel the guarding around it and create a condition of support and consistency. So you can actually watch not just the thumbnail image, but the whole tape. Unless you've decided, you know what, I'm actually fine. I don't need to know every detail. And then that's usually good for a lot of people too because they've made that conscious decision. And I think that's more where I fall into it. Mm-hmm. Although I know that there's been points in my life um, with, um, I guess, other sorts of trauma um, where I've had that, uh, what did you call it, that twitching thing? Myclonic shaking? Yeah. Oh, man. <clears throat> um I'm like just a Mexican jumping bean <laughs> on a hot day in a, in, in, on your car dash. <laughs> yep. just and that's, that's, why we put, that's why we put the table so close to the floor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know how um, it feels to be kind of, this is a really, uh, I was going to say cheap. Not, it's not cheap. It's just a very uh, poor descriptor. Uh, it felt... Um, you know, I was kind of stuck before and afterward I wasn't. I mean, that's kind of like uh, the, for, for a guy who communicates for a living, I'm really stuck as to how to actually describe that properly. But That's the word though, stuck. Yeah, because it, it, it just felt um, uh, um, bunched up in me and then afterward it didn't. 
right? And um, it wasn't that... Um, it felt like afterward I had the experience of uh, whatever it was that was bothering me, and I was able to objectively deal with it and look at it and handle it, as opposed to before, where I was kind of all muddled and confused with it and wasn't really sure what the hell was going on. Um, so I almost picture it like... Um, I don't know, if you take off a pair of socks and you were to fold them and lay them down neatly on a table, or if you were just to sort of take off a pair of socks and just throw them down on the floor. <laughs> you know, that crumpled pile of fabric is kind of what I was before. What a, what a great description, because, I mean, that's fundamentally, we want to take everybody who's all scrunched up like a, you know, balled up sock under a mattress and stretch them out and let them sort of decide how they want to be folded or how they want to be present in their bodies in the world as they walk and sit and breathe and sleep and make love and mm -hmm. exercise and other things. But it's, you know, I guess I'll probably say this another 20 times, but uh, how we remember ourselves as a bunch of nerves from your brain down and how we remember ourselves as the muscles those nerves have directed how we remember ourselves as an orientation of bones in space that's held together by muscles that are, you know, held in tension by nerves. That's a memory and, um, of you. I mean, you walk into a bar and there's a, it looks like there might be a fight. I mean, are you going to be the guy or the girl who feels and remembers yourself as someone who can tussle in a bar fight? Or are you going to get out of the door or you're driving on the highway and there's a car accident, you know, and you remember yourself as a person who's stuck and broken and, and uh, unavailable to a lot of things in life. You might just drive by, even feel guilty for weeks, uh, or you might, you know, pull over and call somebody else. Or maybe you remember yourself as a person who, um, uh, even if you don't have any medical training would just be the kind of person who's going to get out of your car, go in there, even if it's on fire, drag those people out of there. Cause you remember yourself as someone who is that resourceful, adaptable and present. And I'm not judging anyone who would drive by or call, call 911. It's just to frame ourselves in, in the sense of if you remember yourself as a completely resourceful, adaptable and present person, I don't think you're going to need any kind of treatment, you know, whereas if you remember yourself as someone who's got all kinds of limits uh, issues, aversions, phobias, um, obviously the memories, uh, you know, almost everyone with any kind of addiction, all of those kind of uh, experiences, that's how you remember yourself. And it's based on how you feel in your body, not just how you have an opinion of yourself. Or if you were to write a, a descriptor under your resume, I'm great or I suck. Hmm. You know, as, as you say that, the, the image flashes across my eyes here of um, the most recent a pantomime play that actually happened here in Nelson where one of the characters on stage I saw them as the character and then I saw them outside of the theater afterward I mean for the sake of our listeners Nelson's a pretty small town there's 10,000 people here or is it a city anyways um, and you see people around town all the time that you know uh, just because you see them all the time and so for me to see this particular person up on stage quote-unquote acting as a cow, <laughs> uh, complete with the black and white outfit and the udders, um, that sort of went up against the memory I had of them as the person I saw around town. And then after the play, which was I think an hour and a half long or whatever it was, um, then when I saw them as themselves again outside of the theater, I had to like, oh yeah, right, that's what they are like. you know. So the memory that I had of them being this particular way um, 
wasn't necessarily the memory they had of themselves. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that, that, that's kind of what you were just saying, right? Well, I guess, but I, I think I'm, like, I just want to be very clear. I'm speaking very precise to the subjective experience of being in your own body. Sure. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of uh, paraphrasing and sort of seeing it at a distance, but I'm trying to understand how you say one would actually manifest that in their own body, that they would actually be the difference between uh, themselves or another version that they're acting of themselves. Um, I guess so, yeah, in a way. So I think if I was to take that to where you're going, I would ask you and me and anyone listening, imagine someone who you can, you know in your world, or if you don't, you can imagine them, who is completely exhausted. Mm. They, I mean, they got kids, they got jobs, they got whatever, they can't sleep. And you can see them moving through the world, but they kind of have that wraith like, you know, are they really there or uh, not? Because you can see what exhaustion looks like. Right. Imagine another person, uh, they have some kind of degenerative disc disease. They have all kinds of nerve problems. You know, one leg works really well, one doesn't. And they're kind of hobbling their way down the street. And maybe, again, we live in Nelson with 10,000 people. I can think of three people off the top of my head who walk exactly like that. Um, we can empathize a little bit about what that must be like. And right. I think if we tried to imitate how they were moving in that way, we might have a, a different kind of kindness or empathy towards them. So we've got, you know, we've got the exhausted person, the person in chronic pain. Um, then maybe think of someone who's uh, obviously under a lot of stress. Right. You know, their shoulders are trying to hook up with their ears. Um, their back is stiff and they're doing everything they can to, to be against whatever the consequence that we're worried about is. Or imagine a military vet sitting on the street corner asking for money because apparently countries that want big armies don't want to take care of them when they come home. And this person has PTSD, you can clearly, clearly see it in their posture and their eyes that, you know, if a car drove by and it backfired, you know, uh, you're not really sure what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So as we can start to see in other people and, and maybe imitate or empathize what they're going through, then I think we start to appreciate that whole kind of uh, milieu or rainbow of all the different kind of experiences that we can have or other people have. And that's actually what helped me develop neurosomatic therapy. Um... So being a martial artist, I've spent a lot of time standing in front of one, two, three people dealing with the pantomime or the actuality of physical violence. And the only thing I've learned in almost 40 years of training, actually it is 40 years now, I feel so old. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in really functional martial arts, your job is to make the other person terrified enough that they forget how to use their limbs effectively. So a big part of my life has actually been, you know, forcing people to basically ball up instinctually. And I started to map it out over years and years, like, wow, you know, everyone has the same basic uh, physical response to danger, threat, violence, and stuff like that. And then as being in my clinical practice for over 20 years, you start to see that there's even deeper ways in which human beings just seem to organize too much. It's too much pain, too much stress, too much trauma, uh, not enough sleep. You know, so that's when I started playing around with that with acupuncture, where I would, instead of using classical points and, and things like that, I would just start putting the needles where we would say the chi is stuck or the person's mind and body is stuck posturally. And over a couple of years, I was like, you know what? I'm getting way, way better results from their subjective feedback uh, of how their body feels and how their symptoms feel and how their illness is progressing in the non-illness direction, focusing on just how people hold, you know, trauma in their body. So that's when I started, you know, getting into it. And well, it's kind of a funny story, but 
I was at a party gathering in, I think it was around, I don't know, 2003, four, And uh, someone had asked me, you know, what, what would you, what kind of training do you think you would make for people to help them be clinically effective in the least amount of time? Like say there was some kind of calamity and we just needed to make people clinically uh, capable. And we, you know, sh shot some ideas around the room because most people there had some relationship with healthcare. But then I went home and I was just sitting on my couch hanging out. And uh, within the space of three hours, I designed the entire neurosomatic therapy program. And it kind of was like one of those channeling dumps from wherever channeling comes from. A download from a different planet. <laughs> a download from somewhere. And I was working with this really gifted uh, massage therapist at the time in my practice. And I, I kind of walked him through it. And he was really excited about it because he was going from a transition in his practice from the typical grinding uh, of tissue, the typical kind of work that massage therapists do. He was going in the direction of more with traction and very gentle therapeutic interventions instead of grinding his thumb into people's thorax or something, which some people want. And uh, he was seeing the same thing. He's getting way better results by, by working on uh, myofascial systems and release uh, than the typical thing. So I said, well, do you want to help me out with this thing? And he said yes. And he taught some of the classes for the first couple of years. And it, was, it changed his practice. It changed my practice. We taught, I think, over two years, 30-something people. Most of them already had some background in healthcare uh, in that practice. And, uh, yeah, so that's when it became a thing. And we just started teaching it. Just sort of kind of an inspired conversation at a party. Uh, yeah, and also I think I was just at that threshold in my own practice where I needed to do something that felt authentically true to what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, you can get away with the opposite of that with any other, with any system of medicine. Chinese medicine, I can just, you know, pick a syndrome that fits your symptoms and, you know, fill out my paperwork. And, you know, if I ever ended up in court and someone's trying to sue me for malpractice, all I have to do is say, I followed the rules. Right. doesn't mean I was doing a really good job or paying attention to you in any way, but I followed the rules. Hmm. You can do the same thing with, you know, if you're a psychiatrist, if you're a MD or surgeon or whatever. And that kind of the, the lab coat slash, you know, paperwork allows us to stay at a certain kind of distance from our patients. And I think it was just a poignant thing uh, in my life that before I was actually... Um, before I provided myself the opportunities to actually remember the things that had happened to me, I was developing a system to help people release the trauma that they had held in their bodies for 30 odd years or whatever. So it was like this perfect timing of intuition, which is, okay, I'm going to need to like go deep and, you know, re-experience all these things and let go of the trauma, you know, but that was probably three years later when that actually ended up happening to the where, where I was you know, going into ceremonies and dealing with that myself. So... Who knows if I wasn't just doing a little bit of, you know, you're going to need this, so figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of uh, Dr. Heal thyself forecasting. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I was also just learning that, you know, for me to be happy with me and for me to really help my patients, I had to engage deeply, you know, within myself or within their experience, what's really going on. And that's sometimes very, very different than whatever syndrome we can label a person as having. Mm. The the whole approach to uh, finding this um, process and actually going through it. Um, at one point, did you actually say to yourself, um, "I'm doing this just for me," or "I'm onto something something bigger"? Uh, it was years later that I realized I was doing this for me too. Mm. Wow. You know, and then it was so I was so grateful to have actually had. Um, 
the people that I was working with because what I needed to unravel, there was this group of people that were trained in exactly the way I was comfortable with unraveling. You know, well, I would say comfortable, but at least I trusted it enough to, you know, dive in. Is there something you can say to sort of describe, um, I guess, the process or what's actually involved? We've been talking about, um, I guess, laying a foundation for the idea of what neurosomatic uh, therapy can be, um, trying to paint a picture for people around that um, avenue of health, that, that way of thinking. But so if, if I was to come to you, and say, hey, can you do this? And you'd said yes. I'd say, so what are you going to do? So what I would do to begin with is help you figure out uh, how to express what's called a somatograph or a, uh, usually what I would do is have a photocopy of the human body front and back, you know, like an outline and offer a person a chance to either just scribble where they felt pain or soreness or draw more sort of symbolic images. Some people would take that piece of paper home and come back with a piece of art on a completely different piece of paper, you know, that for them symbolized what it was, uh, that their inner world and their t sort of tissue sense of their inner world was like. And I really wish to this day that I had taken pictures. I don't think phones had cameras then. Maybe they did. I just, I was, I know, I'm always 10 years behind what's going on with technology, <laughs> but, uh, some of them were like so beautiful and so just um, so precise that, I mean, I would have never come up with that. I'm not very artistic in that way, but you know, you get to know the person, they show you this picture. You're like, yep, that's exactly what, what I would have done if I had this uh, kind of artistic you know, way of seeing things. So we first do that so that a person can basically so that you know that I know that you know that whatever I'm doing with your tissue is about trauma and distress and uh, emotional stuff instead of, oh, yeah, sure, I'll just get that kink out of your neck, hmm. right? Because right. that changes what's going on. Even if I'm just using acupuncture, you know, I know, you know, that that needles where you're holding on to whatever your dad did to you, not just, you know, that kink in your neck. So as things release, what changes is more specific to our experience than just our boo-boo. Our Mm, right. So I'll get into this later, and I think this might be a bit of a longer show, but um, there's eight different specific layers of embodiment that are involved in the practice of neurosomatic therapy, and I'll come back to that. But usually once we have that somatograph and that picture, then that gives me a sense of which layers are the most involved and how much this person, you know, how long I would expect this person to be able to, uh, how long it would take for this person to release most of that. I mean, you never know, but, you know, or people want to best guess, you know, how many treatments, dog? Right. You know, so there's that part of it. When you're actually getting the treatment, it looks something like a very strangely rehearsed massage in the sense that there's uh, a consistent flow of uh, manipulation and technique going from something fairly loose to something very, very specific and then to something back to kind of uh, broad systems across the body. You know, so I'm doing what you'd expect to be a massage, then it would look like I'm doing maybe trigger point releases, then it would look like I'm doing, I don't know, something like jujitsu in the sense of, you know, putting a person in various uh, torsions around limbs and joints, which allow me to put a very specific kind of traction across the myofascial sheath of various tissues. And basically, once you get things loaded up, uh, you have to stay at around two to four ounces of pressure on the membrane for about two minutes. And then the muscles structure within the myofascial sheath, which is not really a muscle, but close, uh, it fatigues in a way where it can no longer maintain its guardedness. And then it just fatigues out and lets go. 
and then the person's joint moves. And then usually that's when they start twitching and stuff because now the body has to reassert and um, uh, requalify how this sort of standard global memory of the body is. Because once you free it up, the body's like, oh no, who am I now? <laughs> or what am I supposed to do with this now? So the body sort of, you know, quivers and shakes and, and does a few things until it resets itself, maybe with 20% more range of motion or 20% more breath capacity or, or something. And then for the next week, the person basically adapts to being, wow, I feel really different. This is strange. And habit usually takes over and then they go back about 10% towards where they were the week before they come back in and that's what you would assess. Okay. You freed up this much and you've gone back to guarding in the same way as before this much, or what sometimes happens is people free up and then they go, wow, I didn't know I could do that. And then they come back in a week later and they're at 30% hmm. because they just ran with it. So when you make those sort of, um, <clears throat> adjustments, manipulations, um, and the body gets to the spot where it's actually resetting, mm -hmm. that it's no longer holding onto that trauma and the way that it remembers it, does the body know, what it's supposed to be doing? Is there something inherent to the body that says that it's supposed to look like this, even though you've been holding it that way? I don't know if, I mean, I think there is an innate uh, optimal way of walking or running or standing or, you know, breathing uh, from the athletic or sort of scientific sense of what looks like optimal. But I don't think individuals naturally sort of have that as a memory. I think that's something... We, you know, if you took a 50 people and they all walked by kind of like the, that thing with cops, you know, you have to stand up and... A lineup. Thank you, lineup. So glad I'm, you're here because my vocabulary seems to be missing today. <laughs> so if you had 50 people walk across the, the little window, double pane glass or the double mirror glass, um, if you watch 50 people walk by, you're going to see 50 different somaticized, you know, people in terms of their consciousness lives in their body in this way. And you might be able to go, that person looks like a ballet dancer, that person looks like a weightlifter, that person looks like maybe they know some kind of martial arts, or that person looks like they're a chronic alcoholic, that person looks like they're in pain, that person looks really sad. You know, we have, I think, a sort of intuitive body sense of other, and I think we have a familiar sense of self, but I don't think most people have a, you know, an optimal sense of this robot needs better lube or something to function properly. There's, there's no... Um default program built in that says, oh, you need to be doing this right now. If anything, I think it would be more like how babies move around. Hmm. This is a weird total aside, but I saw this thing, it was about a year ago, where they took a two-year-old kid and put it in front of a bunch of fitness experts. They were yoga teachers, dancers, other people who are super fit. And their job was to f do everything the baby did for six hours. Most of them gassed out after two hours. Six hours. Wow. Two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, the baby's crawling, rolling, bending. It has, like, it's, you know, shaming the yoga teacher with flexibility or whatever. Anyway, so it's just an example that, you know, I, I think the closest, funny. <laughs> the closest thing we have for what I would call innately good movement is probably what two-year-olds are doing. Hmm. So uh, I guess in that whole idea then, it's um, regardless of whether or not we're actually in some sort of trauma, how it is we carry our body is still how it is we think we should be carrying our body. Mm -hmm. Huh? Yeah, I would say, I mean, and that's what I mean when I say, um, this is how you remember yourself in the world because you're reaching from your basic, your, I mean, if you want to get more into this, if you're listening, go back to one of our first episodes, it's called the primal paradigm. And it's all about how, you know, there's so much more opportunities to get well as a body instead of as a ego. 
mm-hmm. or, or as a, just a conscious person. Anyway, so uh, we all move through the world and our capacity of uh, not only functionality, but adaptability, resourcefulness, our ability to be present is to, honestly determined by how you basically feel in the world. Now, I'm going to look at this completely the other way, too. So for some reason, I just had a flash in front of my eyes of Stephen Hawking. Okay. And there's this guy. He has very limited movement of his body. Uh, he's in a recumbent wheelchair. You know, he has a whole bunch of things that can create a lot of pain and tension. And Do you know like what that. the illness was that actually put um, him in that does, state? It doesn't come to mind right now, but I'd love to look it up. Is it ALS sure. or something? Or? Maybe. Like, I don't but know. I'm not sure. But anyway, so I imagine what it would be like to be that person. So it's not like we all have to walk around with some Apollonian um, iconic kind of body image. I think it's just getting very, very aware that it's your awareness of your body and how it feels that determines, I don't know, I guess your adaptability. Whereas if you're just running on automatic, then you're going to deal with other people as if you're on automatic, which makes, makes most people what we call an asshole. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, an air of confidence. And sometimes it's a stinky air of confidence. Yeah. Well, that brings up a really fun little, um, what would we call that? Homework? Exercise? Well, it's kind of a mental hack. Okay. So I'll throw this out and then we got to get back to the show. <laughs> um, well, this po- is this is a part of the show. This is a podcast. We can do this. Yeah. You're, you're allowed. <laughs> So I often ask people to, and I'm going to, this is a weird with a recorded show, but for input perpetuity or whatever, if you're listening to this, please do this exercise. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I'm going to say a word and play along Anthony, if you like. Okay. Uh, When I say that word, I'm going to ask you to think of the first three people that you feel that word describes really, really well. Okay. The word is confidence. Who do you know of in your life that as you look around and, you know, see people, who do you think are the most confident people you know? Hmm. And okay. you don't have to say it out loud, but just got three people? Mm-hmm. Okay. So try and scrub those three people off your front of your forehead because, you know, you, you probably remember them, but it's not really about that. So I'm going to say another word and same thing. Think of the first three people that come to your mind that that word describes. And the word is Comfortable. So were they the same three people? Uh, no. Yeah. And that's my point is that most people who appear confident are usually overcompensating. Most people who are comfortable, they got confidence, you know, by the, you know, bucket load. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because comfortable is the new confident. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on sale. <laughs> Download it here. <laughs> See that over images of whatever on Facebook for the next 200 years. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the the the, the images that I have uh, that come up and how um, it was almost easier to think of people who are confident than it was people who are comfortable. Yeah, I mean, that's that's I think the point of where neurosomatic therapy came from is I think I was uncomfortable enough, and I was seeing most of the patients I was seeing were uncomfortable enough, and for whatever reason, intuitively, I was like, why well, don't I just work on the way that that looks, you know? from that empathic intuitive sense, like let's just unravel the tension and, and strengthen the weakness and, you know, sort stuff out over time. And people who have a better sense of embodiment have a better sense of themselves. So we've been talking about this idea of what neurosomatic, um, understanding is. And, um, I'm curious, how do people, 
how do they play the home game? How do they take this information that they've learned about how it is they carry themselves and that sort of things? What can they do in their own lives? Is there some sort of advice or some sort of direction you can give them? Well, the thing that usually it has the most benefit actually is for me to reverse engineer the whole thing so that anyone listening goes, oh yeah, and then oh yeah, and then oh yeah. And then hopefully with either with their own practices around physicality, if it's yoga, qigong or something, they can attend to those opportunities. Uh, or hopefully they can go to see someone who's got some kind of basic training uh, around mind-body medicine. I mean, pretty much anybody who's had their hands on people for 10 years is going to be able to help you so that you can focus in on where you need to change. So this is going to, I have no idea how this is going to take, but this is the way I have to do this for people in general to get this. Okay. So, so let's imagine ourselves in an environment that allows us to um, appreciate the human experience of stress. So, and I've done this probably 500 times now, please just <laughs> hang on and, and it'll all make sense in a minute. So imagine that you're on a teeter-totter. You know those little games that kids play, one goes up and down thing on a, yeah. So it's a teeter-totter, and for whatever reason, the teeter-totter is in a squash court. Okay. Because that's about the right size room. So there you are standing in the middle of the teeter-totter. You're not on one end or the other. And I'm just going to ask you to appreciate that the wall in front of you is the wall of opportunity, reward, connection, friendship, um, whatever it is you're trying to see happen next. If it's, you know, that person you want to date or that much money you need to pay off a bit, a bill, we're kind of driven to move ahead to where we can solve problems. And hopefully that includes, you know, things like connection, things like friendship, things that are actually, I don't know, important to humans before the internet. <laughs> Those old fashioned values. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> so the wall in front of you is, you know, instinctually good for you. The wall behind you is, well, it's behind you. So it's looming with all kinds of, you know, teeth and claws and monsters and dangers and basically consequences that we're all trying to get away from, you know. I mean, obviously for most people, the bills are behind you and your paycheck's in front of you and we just keep moving towards paychecks. Okay. Sorry, that was a bit cynical, but I'm trying to appreciate things. If you had more trauma in your life, the wall in front of you is people who aren't insane and dangerous and the wall behind you is that bad uncle or whoever. Right. So back to the teeter-totter, right? Um, if you start to move, and this is a martial arts thing. So if I'm sitting on the teeter-totter and I move towards the wall that's in front of me and the teeter-totter is going to tilt forward, that's me on a very specific level saying yes to whatever is in front of me. And again, in the martial arts, that's the bad guy or him and his friends or, you know, ninjas, whatever you're, you're thinking Kung Fu is going to take care of in your life. So until you're willing to say yes to something, you're typically saying no. And this is the difference between what I would call effective combative training and self-defense training. Because self-defense training starts with blocking and saying no. And there's no way to be effective at something as predatory as violence when you're trying to cringe backwards away from the situation and say no. So whatever it is you're dealing with in your life, first thing is to kind of self-assess how far back on the teeter-totter of oh no am I? you know, with that particular thing in front of me. And as I go back towards the no experience, intuitively, I think we all just naturally go, I'm moving towards the really bad stuff as I move away from this present bad thing. And that's stuck. Hmm. Whereas if I'm, we all have the things behind us, we all have the things in front of us, be it a mugger or, you know, that job you've always wanted. Ninjas. Ninjas or something. <laughs> 
But as long as I can find the the capacity, the willingness to tilt the teeter-totter forward and move towards that wall, then that's my that's my kind of go-to SOP or standing operating procedure as a being in life. So if I was to play out just a couple of more ways, you're standing on the teeter-totter, you're trying to find a way between your yes and no self. And I think that's probably most of us between 20 and 45. Okay. In the sense of how we grow and what we eventually kind of own in ourselves uh, or what we eventually end up needing treatment for because we can't deal because that happens too, right? So let's say that those walls are really, really close to your teeter-totter. You're under a lot of pressure. The consequences are very proximal to you. Like it's every day I've got to solve problems. I got to put out fires. Oh my God. So depending on how many days, weeks, and months you've dealt with that kind of compression of, of trauma and consequences, that's going to load up your system because every day you wake up on the teeter-totter, yes or no, but the walls are trying to squish you. Hmm. And we could take that out the other way where you're standing on the teeter-totter, maybe you're rocking and back and forth, <clears throat> trying to really get a sense of how to be in the world, but the walls are really far away from you. Like somewhere in the future, way out there is some opportunity, uh, maybe. And somewhere in the past, back there, somewhere behind me is probably like my landlord looking for a rent check or something. And those are people that are typically what we would call people suffering from addiction or they're in a dissociative haze or they're on, they're on enough pharmaceuticals to forget how to really give a crap about either way. And that's sort of the weird game of, of being in the modern world is... I know it's a weird image, but we're all in our particular teeter-totter of feeling effective in the world. And the things that we either want to move towards or away from are either at a reasonable distance, comfortable. And I would say most people who are successful, successful in life and can sleep at night. They've figured out a way to get those walls at just the right distance. If the walls are too close, you're basically living in a very compressed, anxious, high-consequence world. And if you're adult enough on pharmaceuticals or recreational drugs, the walls don't even seem to matter anymore. I guess, I mean, there's probably a thousand options, but I would say those are the three that I would ask people to sort of take on as, oh, yeah, I guess that does sort of play out my individual subjective sense of how rough and tough and stressful life is going to be. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> I'm just stuck on a teeter-totter here, just <laughs> trying to take that all in. <laughs> I'm sure for the folks that are listening. If I could mimic some kind of music, I probably will just to get people on. Take this moment, folks, and where do you fit in those Fusion Hills Radio brought to you by Mental Floss. <laughs> Able to help you deal with being on a teeter-totter. Um, Wow. So, so that that's sort of what I would call eagle view or broad strokes. Like that's just what you know. Human lives, twenty first century, we're we're all a little bit bat poop crazy nowadays because of how how rapid things are. Like, and, and what's important has changed. Anyway, I don't want to go too far into that. Okay, so if you're listening to this, hope that helped you at least frame you or someone you know <laughs> in the world. So now we're going to get a little bit into the, the neurology part of it, and it's not very much. So I'm just going to ask anyone listening, including me and you, to stretch out one of your arms and snap your fingers if you're good at snapping fingers. Okay, so we can all do that. So imagine that your arm is a nerve, and it goes from your brain through your spine to a muscle. And the thing that snaps the fingers is the moment when the nerve tells the muscle to contract rapidly because we need to do something. If it's get up and run or... Um, well, whatever has to happen. So, I mean, answer, answer the door, pick up the phone. Yeah, whatever, whatever it is. So when you look at your outstretched hand, this finger snapping thing is cool, but inside the space of your hand for imagery, that's actually what's called a motor neuron. 
It's the way your nervous system actually connects to muscles. And like all other neurons in the body, there's this little sort of space between the actual nerve itself and the next part of the, the structure. In your brain, it's nerve, space, nerve, or nerve synapse, cleft, other nerve uh, or neuron. And each nerve can basically um, hold on to a, what you might call a consecrated, concentrated version of a neurochemical. So big word, uh, catecholamine or adrenaline or epinephrine or epinephrine. They're the rapid, um, most rapid uh, and effective neurotransmitters that we have. And your muscles and the motor neurons will store up a certain amount of those adrenaline molecules to keep it simpler-ish. And when you snap your fingers, those adrenal molecules go into the synaptic cleft and tell the muscle to basically contract in a hurry. Now, when I'm doing this in a public speaking sense, what I usually do is yell really loud or slam my fist on a table because everyone in the room is going to jump, or at least a few people will. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that is to demonstrate as tangibly as I can that one, Obviously, the people who jumped are predictably, you know, assuming something dangerous because their motor neurons are so set up for discharging the adrenaline as muscle contraction that these people startled almost out of their chair. The real point being, there was no time between me yelling or slamming the table for your adrenal hormones near your kidneys to get those hormones and neurotransmitters to every muscle in your body in two tenths of a second. Because, again, stretch out your hand, snap your fingers, look at your hand, your hand's the motor neuron. And if you're a person who's experienced a lot of trauma, you're going to store up a lot more of these catecholamines or, you know, highly, uh, I don't know, rocket fuel-like compounds in every motor neuron in the way that you hold your posture. Hmm. So it's inherent in somebody who's um, stressed uh, or has a lot of trauma to be kind of jumpy? And the same thing is true of boxers, martial artists, okay. uh, other people who, athletes who have to m make sure that their body has trained that particular system of energy to be very, very effective. Hmm. So when I'm training people in combatives, we usually do super intense drills that last a few seconds for about two minutes and then we take a break and we work on something that doesn't require those adrenal hormones so your body can reassert itself. But over time, your training, basically what it is, is your nerves hold more hormones where your body has been habituated to keep them. So again, that could make you a high-class endurance athlete, or it could make you one of those nervous, twitchy people. Or you could make somebody like me who, whenever I play sports, um, I'll be standing there watching the ball go by and then go, oh, hey, look, there's a the ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is true too. Some people don't, don't really load their system up in the same way. Mm -hmm. So, and this is where the imagery gets a little bit weird, but... Um, so right now it's the middle of January when we're recording this. We just all went through Christmas. So when, if you hear this and you've heard of Christmas in the Western world, imagine a Christmas tree. So if, if we look at the Christmas tree, the trunk of the tree is your spine and the spins of your spinal column and spinal nerves. All the little branches and stuff are your nerves and muscles coming out into the world. And all the little fun baubles that we have on the tree are those motor plates, right? The, the motor neurons and your muscles. Now imagine you're the tree and you've got all your little baubles and lights. And for whatever reason, the lights are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Growing in size. Yeah. So okay. now you got like, the lights are bigger than the baubles. Okay. Right. And that's because the motor neuron has now charged up so much energy to deal with trauma 
or fitness goals or, or whatever, uh, that that is your status of physiology. But the tree knows that that's not normal. Your deep spinal memory is there's not, it's not normal to be holding that many, you know, epinephrine molecules and that many muscles all at once. Um, cause it's not, and that's what makes a person's, uh, body basically remember itself as a body in trauma. Hmm. So let's pick acupuncture cause it's a really easy thing to image. Um, and this is honestly one of the most obvious ways acupuncture works. We go in there with these little tiny needles and you poke the motor plates, the motor neurons to let all those inflammatory reactive compounds secrete out into normal circulation and, and, and get discharged. And that's where that twitching and um, so, yeah, sometimes can happen, right? Yeah, because your body has to metabolize that as uh, kinesthetic energy. Sometimes your body can just clear it out as waste, or you just get nauseous, or for a couple of days you get flu symptoms. Well, I remember that one time um, you gave me a needle somewhere on the back of my leg, and it felt like 50,000 volts ran out the bottom of my foot. Was that the same thing? Uh, not precisely, no, but that's okay. uh, effective in a similar way, but just, just a different part of the, the nervous system. Right. Anyway, so a person with PTSD, myself included, um, we're often people who look for situations that are really, really high consequence, high adrenaline. We get called adrenaline junkies because it's very healthy for people who've experienced a lot of trauma to find other ways to basically dispel the congestion of those highly you know, corrosive uh, rocket fuel hormones. So as long as I can get enough exercise and it's intense enough, I feel fine. Hmm. If I don't get enough exercise, I think it's about three weeks. And that's actually when your body goes from normal muscle tone because of activity and it starts atrophying tone and then eating up your muscles for other things because apparently we don't need them anymore. Uh, that's when I start to feel the least at peace and the most edgy because I haven't done anything and my body's rearranging itself towards cocoon Mike instead of athlete Mike. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, as you're saying that, I'm just imagining um, the, the listeners, including myself, uh, painting a much clearer picture of what this all means in terms of, um, what am I trying to say here? When you talk about um, being an adrenaline junkie, um, it's like I, I already know what you're talking about just based on my experience of what that already means, right? Mm-hmm. So I can sort of uh, paint a clearer picture of um, a neurosomatic uh, type um, people, if that's the way to describe them. Uh, well, I mean, they, they, I think it covers everybody. It's just the more loaded a person up. <clears throat> I think that describes any everybody in a way, but what's interesting is how people get loaded up. Mm-hmm. So... I can think of people I know who are competitive athletes with respect to strength training. And you can see that the body has organized itself. Um, you know, there's the, the bank account of hormones and then there's where it's placed and then how, how they express it. Uh, there's endurance athletes. They have a completely different thing going on, although the same basic physiology is behind it. And then you look at people who have, you know, just recently had a car accident or, uh, had another kind of traumatic experience and it's all the same physiology. It just gets loaded up in different kind of ratios and proportions, uh, depending on what's going on. Mm-hmm. So obviously the strength athlete in, in terms of medical statistics has the best outcomes. The endurance athlete has some pretty good outcomes, but in the long term is eventually going to end up looking like the extra in a zombie movie if they keep going for too many miles, too many years in a row. 
I mean, mm. I mean, I mean, if you're taking that personally, listener, please take a moment, go online and type in sprinter or marathoner, and you'll see people that are, you know, someone who looks kind of like they should be hanging out with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then you see somebody who does look like they could be an action in a zombie movie, action figure in a zombie movie or an extra or something, because they're all emaciated and frail. Not to pick on marathon runners, I mean, holy, holy cow, I mean, people can do amazing things, but the cost of that in terms of medical uh, benefit or, or, or the opposite in the long term is worse for marathon people. But those people are pretty healthy, so we'll just, way to go, guys. And then we turn our attention back to someone who's experienced a lot of trauma and stress and has no way to really express it, and their body is instinctually driven to load up those little Christmas lights and make them as big as they can just in case that bad thing happens again, and that feels horrible hmm. if you have no way to reduce that you're basically feeling like uh, a person who's just survived the car accident you know even though it was years ago because you're still in fight or flight right right and here's some trippy scary things that can go wrong with a person whose body is full of stress hormones at both ends of the system your adrenals are pumping them out all day every day because life apparently seems to be that serious and you know, your motor neurons depending on how your posture works and what kind of trauma you've experienced are also basically giant bags of adrenal compounds saying boo right now i think we can all appreciate just intuitively that chronic stress is bad i think i've heard that before yeah somewhere i saw a bumper sticker <laughs> stress bad <laughs> it's like sugar bad you know, so if you're having chronic stress, you're going to end up uh, first having chronic digestive problems because your body has to keep your blood and your muscles to discharge that adrenaline that magically seems to need to be there, hmm. right? So how are you going to digest your food when your blood's in your, you know, legs and arms waiting for the tigers to come in, into the room? You're going to develop anxiety. You're going to develop phobias. You're going to develop uh, eventually depression because... High stress hormones over time actually gobble up neurotransmitters. So you could have the best attitude, but eventually you're going to get worn down and experience more depression, more insomnia. Uh, eventually you're going to trigger your immune system, um, which I can get into the details if we choose to. Uh, your immune system starts to kind of flop around in some really weird ways. And then you start producing um, either depletion of immune system in certain areas or overreactions of your immune system in certain areas. So you're either catching everything or you're having allergies, you know, in the sense of flus and stuff like that. Uh, in the long term, we're looking at uh, infertility, impotence, and in the really long term, you're looking at Alzheimer's. And in the really long term, you're looking at daisies growing up over your head. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that flower? I forgot. <laughs> I remember you telling me something once, um, if it relates, you tell me, please. Uh, movement is uh, metabolic sunshine. That's it. Yeah. Like the ability to be able to move the body. I think you were talking about being more physically active. But in this case, it sounds like movement of things that are stuck is kind of um, medicine mm -hmm. because it clears up all the decorations off of my Christmas tree. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, there's a quote out of the Tao Te Ching um, from Taoism, which is, that which is uh, young, soft, and pliable is life, and that which is old and hard and brittle is of death. Hmm. You know, Chinese is a funny language. It doesn't really translate into English very well, because no matter what I've tried to do quickly with translations, you always go, oh, no, that sounds too, you know, rigid or whatever, but... Uh, I mean, I think that's a really great mirror for the subject, which is, yeah, movement, flexibility, pliability, not just with your limbs, but with your heart, mind, and soul. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas the more rigid and, you know, if you're 
your religion compels you to hate other people or whatever. I mean, we call that of death, which means you're probably going to die sooner being one of those uptight people than if you're actually going to be a playful person. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, I mean, as you say that, it's just, that just sounds so uh, obvious. Um, and yet, um, as we've been talking about how people manifest stress and things in their body, um, some people just don't, I guess they just don't see it when they look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that it was actually there. Well, I think there's a part of us that, you know, that that's our guile. Our guile? Guile. Uh, it's a part of our nature that may be a bit tricky, a bit schmoozy, a bit seductive, a bit, I don't know, uh, manipulative, seductive, whatever. Just in the sense that we're trying to see something happen, but we're going to kind of be maybe a bit creepy or, you know, tricky around it instead of being present and authentic. Hmm. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest wins I think in living in the, in the world at any time in the world, but especially now is when you drop into your authentic self and suddenly come to realize I never have to rehearse another conversation again. When you, (laughs) my mind is just going in all these different (laughs) creative directions today. So when you talk about guile, I read an article the other day about how to get people, um, uh, to be more comfortable when they're being videotaped or when they're on film and invariably people don't like the way they look because what they see on video is what they actually look like because the image that we're used to seeing when I wake up in the morning and I go in the bathroom and I brush my teeth, that image is reversed. And so for me to see myself on film or video or whatever it is, um, all of a sudden I'm confronted with this um, um, guileless um, representation of me. All of a sudden, I haven't smoothed over the fact that I'm half asleep and I'm this charming guy brushing his teeth, charming, handsome guy brushing his teeth. <laughs> I'm this guy who looks like he slept like crap the night before and didn't comb his, whatever he's got left of his hair. <laughs> you know, it's like um, what actually, uh, what I actually see when I look in the mirror, what I actually see when I experience the world um, when I go out there and when I do things, um, has a certain level of uh, BS sort of painting uh, the picture um, as opposed to seeing it, cold hard facts, video, that's what you look like, buddy. That skinny guy, brown, that skinny brown guy right there <laughs> with the toothbrush, <laughs> that's you. Is that, that's kind of what you mean by guile, right? Like the, yeah. the sort of lie that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really great example. And now I'm going to be even more self-conscious when I brush my teeth. <laughs> Is that really me? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Black out all my mirrors or something. <laughs> Today in the news, dental decay has gone up exponentially <laughs> across North America. <laughs> Authorities blame Fusion Health Radio. <clears throat> anyway, yeah. So, I mean, I think... The, the way we kind of fake it to make it is a part of this too. But if I take it back into, uh, here's the Christmas tree, here's the spine, here's the nerves and muscles, here's these baubles of, you know, very, very corrosive chemicals um, that are being overproduced by your adrenal glands. They're being over uh, metabolized in your entire vascular system. They're being overstored in these motor neurons just in case that thing happens again, whatever that thing is, which again could be positive as an athlete or challenging as a, a patient with PTSD or something like that. Maybe one little step deeper into a geek out of that school. Sure. All right. So when your body's loaded with cortisol, especially, 
which is sort of the the long-term burn stress hormone where, uh, say, an epinephrine, norepinephrine, they're like the rapid burn, you know, tenths of a second to maybe 10 second kind of burn. Um, the chemistry of all of that and the fact that it's loaded up in probably three different directions uh, in the sense of the system having to overcompensate for that much stress hormones, there's some really, really weird stuff that happens. Um, you know, I mean, I mentioned some of the, the downstream symptoms of its insomnia, infertility, or depression, but the really scary thing that happens is the fundamental um, interleukins, uh, the fundament, fundamental um, functional pathways of your immune system actually get really addled and confused. So stress just perplexes the body well, or the whole system to be... I'll, I'll jump on cancer because we talked about that a couple okay. of weeks ago. So if you're under chronic stress, your body has your little baubles of, of adrenaline and excess of cortisol to try and balance it all out. And this is going to be a bit technical. So we have several different pathways our immune system runs on. And we have a, well, I'll keep it to three for now. Um, well, four. So you have the Th1, Th2, Th3, and we'll get up to Th17. So the Th1 pathway is basically the part of your uh, immune system that deals with viruses, especially inside of your cells. The Th2 pathway deals with more humoral or histamine-like infections like allergies and swelling and redness and itchy and stuff like that, which are both of those are obviously a component of many different kinds of health challenges and illnesses. But under stress, at first, at high cortisol levels, your Th1 gets depressed, right? At the same time, your interleukin-2, which is interleukins are basically these, uh, so you're driving on the road and you see a bunch of guys standing with shovels and they got city uniforms to hold up the shovels and they're all getting paid 40 bucks an hour. <laughs> but there's one guy with a white hat and he's running the, he's the supervisor. So your interleukins are kind of like supervisors of our immune system function. And the main one uh, around cancer is interleukin-2, which tells your T killer cells to chomp up the, the, the dead cancer cells, right? So now you've got a Th1 that's sleepy and an interleukin-2 that's sleepy. So all of the things that are actually like dealing with intracellular changes and gobbling up cells that have gotten naughty like cancer, uh, you're in some trouble. And that's how stress basically relates to the accumulation of and the rate at which cancer can progress in people's bodies. So <clears throat> at a certain point, we run out of the ability to produce a lot more uh, cortisol. Everything's finite and it might take us 10 years, but eventually your cortisol levels in your blood are going from way too much to way too little. And when it's way too little, what happens is your Th1 pathway becomes super overt and aggressive. Right? So now you can have a mild, you know, your one cell is kind of arguing with itself about maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that. And I don't really know what to do because the TH1 guy with the little white hat, uh, you know, he's another kind of supervisor. He's been asleep at the wheel. And now he's running around with a clipboard and a bunch of stuff to do. And the immune system inside the cell becomes super aggressive, accelerating the actual cancer activity. Right? Freaky. But, you know just to give people a kind of an appreciation that too much stress hormones in any way, bad, not enough stress hormones anyway, bad. So with the context of neurosomatic therapy, it's really all about getting those stress hormones to have a different kind of behavioral baseline. Because hmm. as long as they're doing what they're supposed to be and you still have some adaptability and you can still play uh, with whatever it is you're going to play with, with 
uh, lifestyle choices and stuff to regulate yourself, then you're going towards health. The more you move away from playing and experimenting and, and you know, seeing what works, the more you're going to freeze up in the habit of the Christmas tree with the lights that are too big. Yeah, the word uh, balance comes to mind. Yep. And that whole teeter-totter analogy comes to mind. Yeah, but sometimes we need help to drain off or to release or to have the support and maybe a good hug for when we start to freak out by releasing those unnecessary uh, charges of volume of hormones around muscles. Mm-hmm. So neuro, neurology, somatic tissue... Um, that's the plan. We're just going to get all of that excitation down uh, over time. And it's easy to map out in people's bodies. I mean, uh, we're getting probably long in the tooth for this episode, but maybe we could do another one at some point uh, on the actual eight layers of distress and how they actually uh, read in life. And uh, yeah, we're gonna have to do another one because mm-hmm. we have to learn about how Oscar the Grouch is actually running the whole thing, which is fun. It's a little, little teaser for the folks on the, on the <laughs> other end of this thing going, what? <laughs> I listen to this podcast. These guys talk about everything. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so the, this this is the, the the game when it comes to chronic distress, chronic pain, clinical exhaustion, depression, anxiety. All these things, although we look at them, you know, maybe as immune system problems or mental problems, they're all neurosomatic problems. And the more we focus on freeing up the somatic self, the more rapidly you're going to see effective gains, positive changes. Uh, confidence that you're you now have an ally or a system of uh, exercise and, and therapy that is working and it's honestly well that doesn't sound very simple given the last 15 minutes but the underlying assumption or theory behind the whole thing is really quite simple mm-hmm. yeah and we've been at it for over an hour i mean um this is certainly something that I would need to listen back to again to sort of really have these ideas sink in. Um, but I'm curious, is there more that you wanted to sort of share on the whole idea of neurosomatic? Or we, did we sort of touch all the bases? I think we should do neurosomatic theory part two, the practice, in the sense of if you're a clinician, I'm sure within an hour of talking about the, the actual systematic approach might guide some of the clinicians listening to experiment with that. And people who are kind of caught up in that thing themselves you can use your qigong your yoga your stretching your time in the sauna room the time you take uh, to get a massage or acupuncture uh, as a patient to focus in on the areas where you intuitively feel uh, you are actually charged up Mm -hmm. because that's i mean humans for whatever reason we all respond to imminent threat and danger and consequence in the same order that's pretty cool (laughs) <laughs> yeah so the next episode well i had planned on something else but uh well, we'll, we'll decide but other the next one or one really soon is going to be about the practice of neurosomatic therapy wow uh very interesting ideas shared today my brain is still uh reeling with imagery ninjas on teeter-totters <laughs> <laughs> and oscar the grouch and everything else that we started talked about today and not to uh dismiss uh what you're saying at all uh but just to say that it's I'm going to have to listen back to this one uh, more than once to let it really sink in. Uh, great conversation today, Michael. Um, Me too. Uh, for me, it's a very passionate subject because it honestly saved my life and it saved a lot of other people too. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, uh, dear listener, if you've enjoyed what you heard today, uh, then you're probably a health geek uh, like Michael and I are. He might be a little bit more geeky. <laughs> and uh, I encourage you to share this with a friend who might be interested in hearing more about what we have to say. There are, as we talked at the top of the podcast, uh, 30 episodes 
in this archive. You can go back and you can learn all kinds of things. Uh, native wisdom, uh, primal medicine. Uh, what else have we talked about? Cancer, cholesterol. Those are the most recent. Yeah, lots about nutrition. Uh, the brain. Oh, yeah, we did five on neurology. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, health geeks, uh, this one is for you. Uh, Fusion Health Radio is an opportunity for you to learn all kinds of neat and wonderful things. You can connect with us. Anything you heard today, uh, please feel free to find us on Facebook. Look for Fusion Health Radio there. Uh, you can leave us a kudo, a comment, a complaint. We want to hear it all because um, we want to know you're listening. And uh, if you have any kind of questions about medical-related things, uh, certainly you can uh, get in touch with Michael that way. I'm sure you'd be happy to hear some kind of questions, hey, Michael? Yeah, I'm really curious of, uh, yeah, the pros, the cons, and what could help you the most. You know, if you're a practitioner, that would be cool to know uh, what you practice and, you know, what little biohack might be the thing you're trying to figure out. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, We will see you in the next podcast. This has been Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. I'm Anthony Sana. I'm Dr. Michael Smith, and please rate and review us on uh, iTunes, because that's apparently how the internet knows that we're real. Yeah, we're real. I think so. (laughs) See you, Michael. Thanks. Thank you. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.